Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market effective immediately. It is no longer permitted to buy, sell, transport, import, or use military-grade assault weapons in this country. All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start the show today with the federal government's looming ban on military-grade assault weapons. You just heard the voice there of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau making this announcement last year. Of course, it came in the aftermath of the Nova Scotia shooting rampage, the worst in Canadian history. After that, Trudeau announced the ban, and we're talking about a lot of firearms here in Canada uh, set to be banned now. Now, what is the government going to do with all those firearms? Well, they are rolling out a massive buyback program. This will be like the biggest effort of its kind in Canadian history. Canadian gun owners will have the opportunity to surrender their guns to the government. The government will then buy back the firearms from their owners. They brought in IBM to help run this thing. The looming legislation on this in the House of Commons. Going to give you an update on that. We've got both sides of it here this morning. We start today with Dr. Najma Ahmed. She's a trauma surgeon in Toronto, co-founder of Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Dr. Ahmed, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mr. Smith. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for doing this. And if we could just go back here just to start to the 2018 shooting in Toronto, which became known as the Danforth shooting. Uh, This was a situation where a man named Faisal Hussein killed two people, wounded 13 others using a handgun. Can you tell me, I, I, I believe you were on duty, right? You treated some of the victims there, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct, Mike. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a terrible day for Toronto and uh, for the country, really. Uh, you know, I think what happened that terrible, I believe it was in August, July, August afternoon, summer of 2018, is that I think many of us Canadians realize that gun violence is not an America-U.S. only problem, that in fact... It is a Canadian uh, problem, and it's not only an issue of uh, drug deals gone bad and criminal intent. You can be eating ice cream with your family on a warm summer evening in a patio somewhere in the center of the city, uh, you know, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock in the evening, and be a victim of uh, gunfire. So I think many of us, uh, I will say that those of us who work in this field, have for some time been concerned by the rise in gun violence that we've been seeing in our communities. But I think on that day, just like in that terrible on that terrible day in Nova Scotia that you mentioned, yeah. the whole uh, the whole country stood up and took notice of this and the tragedy that will remain with these families for the generations to come. Okay, do you support what the Trudeau government is doing here in in, in banning these firearms that's being rolled out right now? So you know we're going to understand more. I think we will see the proposed legislation perhaps as early as next week. What we understand is that they will uh, enshrine the Orders in Council of May 2020 in uh, stricter legislation 
which means that those people who do not surrender their assault uh, weapons, assault-style weapons, uh, in the buyback program will be required to potentially to um, uh, you know further licensing and registration of those of those weapons. And I, I, want, I must say, with our objective and the objective of all of all of us who work in this area is to get these guns out of our homes and communities, all of these terrible, highly lethal assault-style weapons. Um, and, uh, you know, we want to do our best to... We, we would urge the government to do its best to ensure that as many of these weapons as can be are bought back and removed from society. But we, you know, observe the, what has happened in New Zealand where their government instituted a mandatory buyback program and, Many gun owners did surrender their weapons, but others did not, which presents a wicked problem. So what do you do with those um, right. firearms that are not surrendered voluntarily? Well, it sounds like, and we're waiting to see the legislation here, but it sounds like they, they might have a provision where if, if you choose not to surrender these firearms, that you could keep them but never use them again. I guess you'd have to lock them up in a safe forever and never touch them or look at them again. I mean, it, it sounds right. like maybe something like that is coming. What do you think of that? Yeah, so I, you know, I mean, uh, the current uh, orders in council uh, mean that these weapons cannot be bought, sold, transported, or used. And perhaps what the or the the further legislation will do will require increased regulations around annual licensing and registration. So uh, that if you keep them, you have to declare that you've kept this prohibited weapon. Uh, I'm assuming. I don't know. We have to sort of uh, wait and see what yeah. the what the legislation proposes. Right. Speaking to Dr. Najma Ahmed, she's the co-founder of Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns. What do you say to the argument that taking away legal firearms from law-abiding Canadians is not the answer? What we have to do is crack down on gun smuggling across the Canada-U.S. border, gun theft. That is that is the problem. Like the guy, the guy who was the gunman in the Danforth shooting that tragically you you were involved with there as a doctor treating victims i mean i i've read sort of conflicting reports of where that handgun came from i, I saw one report that was traced to the united states another that it was it was stolen in a break-in somewhere in, else in the country in saskatchewan i mean at the, the end of the day it was not a legal weapon that he had there um so, you know your thoughts yeah so yeah i mean i think that's a great question and what we've uh, what we Canadian Doctors of Protection from Guns uh, are, have been advocating for is a comprehensive approach. So all the things that you mentioned are absolutely important and they all require uh, a different strategy. The bottom line is that we want to decrease the proliferation and the prevalence of these firearms in our homes and communities in our societies. Certainly we have to address the smuggling of guns across the border. We also have to decrease the prevalence of guns in our in our homes and communities. I you know a lot of people like to talk about uh, crime and interpersonal violence in the inner city, but the most frequent cause of gun death in this country is suicide uh, by firearm, actually. And, uh, we, and that is because guns are readily available in homes, as well as, um, you know, their use in domestic violence and homicide. So all of these things require a slightly different and tailored approach but what they all have in common is the gun. So for sure, we need to decrease the prevalence and people's access to guns in uh, legal and illegal. The other thing I will say is that... Um, lost my train of thought. The other thing let I will me, say let me, let me, uh, let me yeah. ask you one Let me yeah. ask you one more question. Uh, 
the weapons that are being the firearms that are being banned here by the by the Trudeau government are, are what Trudeau was called military grade assault weapons and gun rights advocates will dispute this description they will say look these weapons that are being banned are semi-automatic rifles that work just like you know, other other rifles that are not being banned uh they they are not fully automatic weapons you don't they're not machine guns which are already banned you have to pull the trigger for each shot there's only five bullets allowed in in the chamber or the clip and so what you're doing is you're banning weapons that are really not a problem. Like, you know, we already have fully automatic machine guns banned in the country and you're banning weapons that are, that are not, that are not that category. They're not really military assault weapons. Your thoughts? My thoughts are that, uh, you know, these weapons that have been banned are easily modifiable. And this argument of five bullet uh, chamber only is a red herring. Those uh, reloadable magazines are very easily modifiable and uh, can uh, fire uh, repeated rounds uh, of uh, ammunition. And we know that these kinds of weapons have been used in mass shootings uh, across across the world. The AR-15 actually is the most commonly uh, used weapon in mass shootings in the U.S., and that is almost a weekly or monthly event. We don't want to get there. And these weapons, we know, uh, you know, are very efficient killing machines. That's what they're used for. They're used to kill and maim as many people as possible in the shortest period of time. But, but how is that? But is that true, though? If it's not, they're not. These are not automatic weapons. They're semi-automatic weapons right. with loadable, with, with, with loadable yeah. magazines that are easily modifiable. So both the magazine and the, the automatic, me- the semi-automatic mechanism that can be modified is. Uh, banned by these orders in council. Other countries that have moved to these legislative efforts have much lower rates of firearm injury and death in their community. So we shouldn't compare ourselves to the U.S. because that's not who we want to be like. We want to be like countries that are safer uh, from gun violence. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. I appreciate, I appreciate, thank you. I appreciate it a lot. Dr. Najma Ahmed, Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns. Talking about the Trudeau government's gun ban, the government getting set here to roll out a massive buyback program to buy back guns in the hands of Canadian gun owners. You heard my conversation there with Dr. Ajma Ahmed. Now let's get the other side of it. Rod Giltaka, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Rod, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay. What would you say in response to what she said? Because I know you heard the interview there. Right. There's so much factually wrong. I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what she said that was factually true. So um, as you can see from you know her the conversation you had with her, there's a reason why we oppose doctors getting involved in firearm related uh, policy discussions, because they have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to firearm policy, uh, criminal use of firearms or how firearms work. I mean, you heard her stumbling around. Oh, uh, these are modifiable. The guns modifiable. I guess she was implying full auto. The RCMP is that not is that not true? That, is that not true? You you can't modify. Absolutely, these? it's not true because okay. the RCMP experts in the lab actually determine what's convertible to full auto or not, and all of the firearms that were banned were were determined by the RCMP to be safe and appropriate for civilian use in Canada. When it comes to magazines, you can three D print a magazine. So a lot of a lot of fallacious arguments, especially the proliferation of firearms, meaning that there's going to be more firearm-related death. That is not true. So it's very difficult to have a conversation where Canadians can get the truth 
in a reasonable, mature manner in which to make an opinion. What about when when she said, and you hear this frequently, you also hear this from the Prime Minister, that the weapons that they're banning are designed to kill the most human beings possible in, in the shortest possible time. And I heard her say that and, and just pointed out to her, we're not talking automatic weapons. These are not machine guns we're talking about. What your thoughts? Well, they're always on message, right? Assault weapons, assault weapons, U.S., mass killing, assault, killing. And it's just, they're always on message. And then when that falls falls apart, which it always does. The, and as I said before, anti-gun people will never sit in a room in a couple of chairs with a camera on in an audience or, you know, whatever, and just have a conversation back and forth about this because it's always hit and run, right? Throw as much disinformation as you can out there. And what happens is that assault weapon argument falls apart and it's taken apart very easily. And then they resort to, well, suicide. Suicide yeah. is the number one result of, of fire-related um, mortality in Canada. Well, fire-related suicides represent 16% of overall suicides in Canada. It's not a leading method whatsoever. And groups like the Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns and the Canadian government, they won't do anything to prevent suicide or reduce it, including instituting the 988 program. It took till just recently, like I'm talking a month ago, for the government to say there should be a three-digit number in the telecommunication system in Canada for emotional emergencies. And so while they do nothing to reduce suicide, it's a great excuse to, to attack people like okay. me that haven't done anything wrong. Okay, Rod, stand by here. As we, let's take a few phone calls here. We've got lots of them as usual. Kevin in Vancouver. Hey, Kevin, what do you think? Hey, thanks for taking the call. Um, so right off the, the, the get-go, I actually want to say I, I understand where the doctor's coming from. You know, she, she's somebody who cares about people's lives. She's seeing it all the time. So I, I really, truly get that. I, I am yeah. a registered firearms owner. Um, and the one thing that has really gotten under my skin is that uh, the firearm that has been banned that I own, uh, it's a 9 millimeter. It has horrific ballistics. It, you know, you can't hit a barn 25 feet away with this thing. It's not a killing machine. It's for target yeah. practice. This does nothing. The, removing this from society does nothing to protect people. Um, I would like to see the millions and millions of dollars they're going to spend on a buyback and let's give the RCMP the tools to take away firearms from people that are actually hurting others with these. Yeah. Uh, licensed firearms owners are not doing that. If you look at the numbers, they just don't pan out, and your guest has mentioned this. My concern is let's take it away from the gang member who's right. actually doing this, and that's hard. That's hard. This is easy. So they're not actually accomplishing anything except for kind of washing this, making it look like they're doing something. Meanwhile, okay. somebody's walking down the street, you know, carrying it. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Kevin. I, I think there is a, a lot of politics going on here. I mean, if you take a look at the opinion polls in this, Trudeau has got large support in Canada for, for what he's doing here. But I, I do agree that I think there's a lot of disinformation out there on it. And, Rod, just to pick up on, on some of those points, you know, I don't know why they don't go after more aggressively gun smuggling uh, from illegal guns being smuggled across the border from the United States. I mean, I don't know. That, to me, should be, like, top priority. Because this buyback program is going to be massive. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be extremely expensive. Uh, you know, do you think they'd be better off going after, like, gun smuggling? Well, of course. And, the, and the, what, what people like the doctor's group, they don't understand that the reason why government should not be heavy-handed making making laws for political purposes or, you know, um, to make hay with their supporters. You, you don't do that because what happens is you have people um, that won't comply and non-compliance is bad. That means your law, your lawmaking process is flawed and it, and it, it 
it creates it, it erodes the relationship that people have with law enforcement, with government, okay. with politicians, with the system, and that is a bad thing for our society. One more call here. Ricky on Vancouver Island. Hey, Ricky. Hey, bud. Virtue yeah. signaling and platitudes. Now, just give me a second here. You got, 30, Scot- you got 30 seconds, okay? Nova Scotia shooting. No AR-style assault rifle. It was handguns. Your Montreal shooting. Handguns. But let's go and ban the AR. I'm a hunter. 99.9%, 999% of hunters are all fine with their guns. 1,700 people die of drug overdoses yesterday in BC announced. You want to give them more money, give them free drugs, and take care of them. The less okay. than 0.001% of hunters and stuff have an issue with guns, but we're going to ban them. Thank, thank you. Thank, thanks, Ricky. Uh, we got way more calls, but unfortunately, as usual, we're out of time. So we'll just have to do it again. Uh, Rod, thanks for coming on. Thanks again for having me, Mike. Okay, you bet. Rod Giltaka there, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Let's talk about the Beijing Olympics scheduled for 2022. It's interesting to see a boycott movement now gaining steam in Canada. A lot of it focused on Chinese treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China, which is just outrageous. Not to mention, of course, the detention of the two Michaels, the Canadians detained in China. Should Canada be sending athletes to Beijing for the Olympics. Now have a listen to this. This is Anime Paul, the federal leader of the Green Party, in conversation with Linda Steele this week. Have a listen. I don't think that any country who is in the midst of uh, perpetrating a, a genocide uh, should be rewarded with a global platform uh, that is as prestigious as the Olympics. Okay, Anime Paul, the federal green leader there. Let's discuss now with my guest, Terry Glavin, the very fine columnist at the National Post, McLean's Magazine. Really encourage you to check out his current column on this topic. Give me a follow on Twitter, Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H. Just retweeted it there for you. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Terry, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it a lot. You heard the uh, the federal green leader there refer to a genocide uh, going on in China. Do you believe that's what's happening in China with Uyghur, Uyghur Muslims? Well, if you read the, uh, the United Nations Convention on the Prevention of the Crime of Genocide from 1948, there are actually several several tests that uh, that might be met, uh, and um, the the regime in Beijing has met a number. I guess three out of five of them. And, you know, people can argue whether or not this is, you know, genocide is the term that we should be using. Um, That's all very interesting. Uh, But that's an academic and legal debate that, you know, I think is kind of boring, quite frankly. Because what's going on in uh, Xinjiang has all of the indications, all the markers of uh, genocidal intent and genocidal effect. And then there's Hong Kong. Then there's the imprisonment of uh, Chinese human rights activists, the right. imprisonment of human rights defenders, uh, the persecution of the Tibetans, um, on and on and on. I mean, yeah. the, the fact of the matter is that we have 180 human rights organizations around the world saying this is absolutely unconscionable and uh, Beijing should never have been granted the Olympics in the first place. We protested it. Six years ago, when the IOC was making the decision, shouldn't be doing it now. And the, the, the complaint that I have is that the position of the federal government is it's none of our business. Right. For, it's as far not, as the, not for us to decide. 
for the for the Uyghur Muslims, for people who are interested in that situation, I, I encourage people to check out the recent uh, Frontline uh, PBS Frontline special on this, which I just I watched again last night. It's called Undercover China, and it you know they get some extraordinary behind the scenes footage and satellite photos of what appear to be concentration camps and large prisons, twelve hundred prisons, uh, two million Uyghurs put into these prisons. I mean, it's just unreal. You know, so I encourage people to just check check it out. And but like you said, Terry, there are lots of other uh, reasons to to criticize China. When we talk about so so, do you think there should be a boycott of the Olympic Games? Then is that what Canada should I do? I think we should be allowed. I think we should be allowed. To, I personally do. I mean, uh, you know, I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve when it comes to the uh, the the mass imprisonment of uh, millions of people uh, in a mass incarceration of of a, of a scale that we haven't seen since the Holocaust right. uh, and other crimes that the regime has committed. My main concern, though, is that we should at least be allowed as Canadians to have this conversation and that Canadian foreign policy should be a function of Canadian uh, political opinion and, uh, and, and Canadian will and Canadian values and Canadian principles. And the difficulty that we've got with this government is that they like to leave things to the experts and to the experts that they like. And the position of the federal government is to essentially outsource the decision about participation in the 2022 Winter Olympics to the Canada Olympic Committee. And the Canada Olympic Committee has outsourced the decision to the International Olympic Committee. And some Liberal MPs, I had an exchange with Anthony Hellsfather the other day, believes it should be left up to the uh, athletes themselves. Well, at some point, you've got to say... You know, if the Canadian flag is going to be flown anywhere in the world at any event, particularly one like this, in which Xi Jinping is hosting this extravaganza uh, to, to, to force uh, the countries of the free world to kowtow to him and to accept his regime as a normal country, I think that we are entitled to an opinion uh, about whether or not our flag is going to be represented there. Um, and, and, and I think that's the thing that I find most disturbing about this, is that we have the most notoriously Beijing-friendly government in the entire G20 uh, telling Canadians that it's none of our business if the Canadian flag is, uh, okay. is flown on the Olympic podium in, uh, in Beijing. The headline on, on your, your terrific column in the National Post right now is, Do Athletes really want olympic medals that have been soaked in blood and i'm wondering if we is it is it fair to kind of punish the athletes here with with a boycott i mean if if this is all about if if that's all we're going to do i mean if canada is just going to boycott the olympic games and then you just continue trade and relations with china as normal doesn't that mean the athletes are taking a sort of a disproportionate hit from I, you know. I think that's I think that's a fair comment, but I, I think it should be pointed out straight away that it's not the the uh, vast array of uh, public opinion and uh, 180 human rights organizations and the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and so on who are victimizing Canadian athletes. The quote that you read from was from Ivy Lee of the Canadian Friends of Hong Kong. And in the case of Annamie Paul, I mean, people have mocked her saying, well, you know, can't just move the Olympics to Canada. It takes a long time. Well, you know, it's the it's actually the, the IOC that is putting 
uh, Canadian athletes in this position. It's not the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project that's being mean to Canadian athletes. It's not students for a free to bet that's being mean to Canadian athletes. We subsidize uh, the, the Olympic establishment in Canada and all those athletes to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And I don't think it's too impudent for us to say, well, you know, we would rather you not, uh, you know, engage in this massive international glorification hmm. of this ravenous, sadistic police state in China. I, I really can't see how that's, that, that's, you know, a step too far. Let me, let me ask you about speaking to Terry Glavin, columnist at the National Post. You mentioned how Canada has kind of outsourced this to the Canadian Olympic Committee, and they in turn pass the buck to the, the International Olympic Committee to make these decisions. Uh, Dick Pound, who is probably the most senior sort of Canadian Olympic official on, on the IOC, he has said this week that boycotts are ineffective, they don't work, they just, they just punish the athletes. What do you think about that argument, that it doesn't work? Well, it's a straw man argument. It's a, it's a, you know, they've, I don't know who their public relations firm is, but this is a line that they've taken up that boycotts don't work. And they, and, and, uh, you know, look what happened in 1980 when, you know, all but about 15 or 16 countries boycotted the Olympic Games in Moscow and, uh, they were still uh, bombing Afghanistan nearly a decade later. Right. Well, that may be true, but you know what? In 1936, the free world participated in the Berlin, Berlin Olympics, yeah. and that didn't stop the Nazis from annexing the Sudetenland and incinerating six million Jews, okay? Yeah. You know, look at Sochi, okay? Everybody was upset about Sochi, too. Like, why are we giving the Olympics to these police states? You know, it was supposed to cost $12 billion. It actually allowed Putin to... Uh, uh, his his inner circle of oligarchs to be engorged by fifty one billion dollars. Uh, it didn't stop Vladimir Putin from continuing his invasion of uh, of eastern Ukraine and his occupation of Crimea and yeah. bombing Syria into smithereens. Right. So when you you know when you participate in these games, look look at the Beijing Olympics, the Summer Olympics. Yeah. Did that stop? Our, did our participation in, in, in those games make any kind of difference? These are straw man arguments, okay? okay? Okay, last question for you, Terry. There are some thoughts, and some people are, you mentioned the federal green leader has made this argument. Why not move the Olympics out of Beijing, China, and maybe do it in Vancouver again? We got the infrastructure here. We, we did the 2010 Winter Olympics, a big success. Uh, we, could we do it here? Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, should should Canada try and make a bid to have the games staged in Vancouver instead? Well, Does that make I, any sense? You no, know, I definitely think that's something. And I think Annamie Paul, bless her heart, you know, she uh, and I think Michael Chong from the Conservatives has suggested something along those lines. Right. You know, maybe we should look into this. Maybe this is a possibility. Mm-hmm. She's trying to be creative, right? Yeah. She's trying to say, no, we're not just saying boycott the games and to hell with the athletes. She's saying, let's see if we can figure out an alternative. And, of course, the entire Olympic establishment is arrayed against that argument. All it takes years to organize an Olympics. I think this could probably actually be done on a smaller scale, certainly somewhere that isn't such an outrageous venue 
like Beijing, right. where they're having to, you know, truck in all of the snow for the damn thing. <laughs> and uh, the other thing is we have to remember how this happened in the first place. It's because Oslo, Oslo withdrew its bid for the Winter Olympics in 2022 because of the outrageous demands the International Olympic Committee was making of them. They wanted dedicated highway lanes for IOC officials. They wanted uh, wine and cheese soirees with the Norwegian royal family. You know, uh, this is just a marriage made in, in heaven, actually. The Olymp International Olympic Committee and the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China, you know, there are a bunch of, half of them are just corrupt oligarchs. You've got to look at the membership of the IOC sometime. It'll make uh, your blood curdle. Okay. Terry, it's always great to have you on. Thanks for your time today. Okay, buddy. Okay, thanks Thanks a lot. Terry Glavin there, a columnist at the National Post. I encourage you to check out his column on this one. Follow me on Twitter. You'll find the link there. Let's talk about that brutal pileup on the Coquihalla Highway. It happened on Wednesday. Police saying approximately 50 people were involved in this uh, terrifying crash here. One man was killed from the South Okanagan. Uh, died in this uh, pileup. His dog uh, died as well. Five people taken to hospital. Uh, police saying they had significant injuries. Just one was in, still in hospital yesterday with broken bones. They're expected to recover. Very lucky, I think, that more people were not seriously injured or killed in this brutal pileup here. Drivers saying that the conditions on the Coquihalla were absolutely brutal and atrocious at the time of the crash. Have a listen to this. This is a truck driver here, Mitchell Danilak. The haunting sounds of, of the crunching metal and plastic that are that are gonna you know just stay with me for quite some time. It is horrific. Oh yeah, it's truck driver Mitchell Danilak talking to Global News. Here's Dave Earl, the president of the BC Trucking Association, saying there needs to be an investigation here. Did the contractor have enough equipment? Uh, was the contract requirements were they enough to make sure that the road was safe? And if not. Uh, what do we do from there to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Okay, there's always been a lot of complaints over the years about the the maintenance of the highway, the clearing of ice and snow. The uh, people who were involved in that crash thing that was very hard packed and very icy on the highway. Uh, these people were complaining there was no sand or salt in that area where this crash happened. Uh, the government put out a statement this week saying the maintenance contractor here, the, the province contracts with a maintenance company to patrol the highway. Uh, they say they had six snow plows out there uh, on that part of the highway, although there is an investigation underway. All right, let's talk about this now with my guest, Steve Wallace, owner of Wallace Driving School. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Steve. Hey, good day, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. I know you've probably driven that uh, Coquihalla many, many times. What do you think about this pileup? Um, the contractor might be under some scrutiny, but I can tell you from experience that uh, the weather changes there very, very quickly. And it doesn't matter what the, uh, what the people are doing as far as the contract is concerned. The weather can trump you every time. And uh, I stopped taking it now. Uh, over the years, uh, I got trapped there one time in dense, dense fog. Uh, following a logging truck and that's the only way i got through was to follow this guy all the way through and it's about uh, 20 30 40 kilometers an hour all the way all the way up and down um and so the closer we got to Kelowna, the better it got but the fact is that uh blaming the contractor uh and uh those kinds of things without any evidence is it's a bit of a stretch uh there are times when that highway should be closed period 
end of discussion. And I think they may have missed the, may have missed the opportunity to close it. Okay, well, I think the like the thing that you said uh, that you think you put your f- your finger on it is without evidence. Like, let's see the evidence, and there will be an investigation here to check whether this contractor was in fact doing the job they're contracted to do to keep that highway highway clear. But man, the weather can come in there like very aggressively and very in very short order, right? So I mean that that highway can turn treacherous very quickly. Would you say in your experience? As far as weather conditions are concerned, it's probably one of the top uh, 10 most dangerous highways in the world if you don't know what you're doing. Um, and as far as the weather is concerned, I, as I told you before, I got stuck there in fog one time. I've been, I've been over the Cook Island winter, and the best thing to do is to get behind a semi that's loaded, and they'll, they'll uh, actually walk you right into where you want to go. But this one was stopped, and the policeman that came up apparently stopped beside it, and there were some other things that were going on at the time. So I, I don't think anyone should really prejudge and start pointing fingers at this stage. It's really quite premature. Okay, but you think, though, that they should close the highway down some, if, if this the conditions are dangerous? I mean, how often do they do that? Is that very common? Every, every trucker's got that radio. Every trucker, some of them got the whole CB. Some, some of them are on, on constant communication. And when they see the danger there, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll call the authorities and say, hey, listen, I might be the last guy through here. I might, I might not get through at all. The Pine Pass is another one that has serious problems from time to time. So there are a number of highways in this in this province that they they can finger every time as to whether they should be closing or not. And then I, I think the better part of, you know, judgment is to is to pull the trigger on that kind of a situation early. Um, yeah. And and the people that are right in the situation have communication. They can tell you exactly what's going on. But to, to start blaming people uh, without any kind of an investigation is a little premature, how, I would think. How does a pileup like this typically happen? Is a chain reaction crash? Is it like is speed a problem or is it sometimes you just get one one guy crashing at the start of the line and it, it, it's just unavoidable getting getting involved um what happens with most people is they're overdriving their own abilities they're overdriving uh the ability of uh, the driver to actually stop or to evade and so what happens is sometimes it's poor equipment sometimes it's just people not leaving enough space as you'll never hit a space you'll never kill a space uh and a lot of it has to do with visibility as well so when you get that blowing snow uh, you got serious problems in, in looking and, and seeing what's ahead. Um, and I always, I always uh, tell our students and people that I've been driving with for years that uh, try to go through in a, in a convoy, and you get a leader, and let that leader do the driving for you. And it's usually a loaded uh, large semi-truck that will uh, will clear the way. And if everyone just stays behind and behaves, you're in good shape. But when people get frustrated and start to pass, and the worst ones are the ones that have the four-wheel drives. Sure, they can go anywhere. Yeah. But they can't stop any quicker than anybody else. Okay, speaking to Steve Wallace about the deadly pileup on the Coquihalla Highway this week, what are the rules up there and the law say for these high elevation sort of mountain highway passes in terms of sort of tires? Like, are are you required to have snow tires? Are you required to carry chains? What's the deal with that? Everybody's required to have snow tires. There's no doubt about that. And um, all the pros will have chains, and they will have areas where they can chain up. So when they built that highway, and I was very familiar with Alex Fraser, who was the Minister of the Highways at the time. I knew him extremely well, and they planned that highway for pullouts and areas where people could actually collect themselves and put chains on in relative safety. And so um, when I say relative safety, I mean in these kind of conditions that happen there, keep going, don't stop. Apparently the truck may have been unable to move because you may have had 
rain on top of snow and that creates the ice and then there's a problem. So I know that the police car was there. Uh, so I think that the investigation will probably bring out all those facts. Mike, yeah, Steve Wallace, we're talking about that deadly pileup on the Coquihalla Highway. It happened on Wednesday. There's an investigation going on into it now. Canada's fast food wars now. Let's talk about that. And today we're taking a closer look at the marketing battle for the best chicken sandwich. Yeah, the chicken sandwich war. It is really cranked up in Canada now. Now, this really started south of the border. It took off, I think, when Popeye's, the Popeye's chicken chain, they launched a crunchy chicken sandwich, and people went crazy for that. There were lineups to get one of these sandwiches. There were even fist fights to get one of these Popeye sandwiches. Now, that really lit the match on this thing, because then you had KFC came out with a pretty awesome-looking chicken sandwich. You got Wendy's in there, uh, Chick-fil-A, which is just sort of starting to get a, a market presence in Canada. Where's he got McDonald's? I noticed they recently rebooted their McChicken sandwich with some hot sauce on top of it. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Robert Carter. He's a managing partner and a food industry advisor with Stratton Hunter and he's an expert on the Canadian fast food industry. I'm really pleased to welcome him back to the show. Robert, thanks for coming on again. Hey, thanks uh, for having me on the show. Okay, last time you were on, Robert, you mentioned this chicken sandwich war, and I just couldn't, I could not resist bringing you back on to, dis- to discuss this. So uh, it's really started in the United States, but is it, it's going on in Canada here too, right? Yeah, it, it sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> chicken know. sandwich war, but yeah. that's exactly what happened. You, you articulated it well. It was... Started in about August 2019 when when Popeye south of the border launched their what's now famous chicken sandwich uh, debut that took a little you know a couple of weeks to to catch on but yeah did it ever catch on and then once the other quick service or fast food restaurants saw the the growth within this category they all jumped on board as well so it's been uh, a good boon for the industry. Okay, Popeyes is a big chain in the United States. It's got a presence in Canada too. I, yeah. I've had Popeyes chicken. I, I think it's really, really good. And I've never tried the sandwich though. But what was it about this Popeyes sandwich that that everyone went crazy over? Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, Popeyes here in in, in Canada, uh, you know, is starting to get some traction. Obviously, owned by same company that owns Tim Hortons, uh, Restaurant mm. Brands International. But, um, you know, th- people really took to the flavor of this chicken sandwich. <laughs> to get technical, what literally happened is they created a, a bigger, juicier chicken filet uh, compared to previous chicken sandwiches. Um, the batter, they put a little change in season and spicing and then some of the toppings and they changed the bun overall. But if we take a step back and, and look at chicken sandwich and chicken as a product overall, it has been increasing pretty dramatically over the last five to seven years. So mm. this tied into a trend that was already taking place and just added a bit of excitement to it. Oh, okay. Is that because what? More, more consumers are choosing to go for a chicken sandwich rather than a burger? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So bur- burger consumption is still the higher uh, is higher than chicken sandwich, but the growth in this category has increased quite dramatically. So in Canada now, ch- the chicken sandwich sales are almost 1.2 billion dollars and they've grown wow. at a, a double digit rate just over the last 12 months. Okay, now I saw that KFC, of course, you know, kind of the reigning champion from the start on, on chicken. 
uh, they came out with their own kind of crunchy chicken sandwich to compete against this Popeye's fad. And that's a pretty good looking KFC chicken sandwich. I got to <laughs> yeah. say, yeah, I mean, I was just, I was just checking it out on, on their website. Um, yeah. where, how is, how is KFC doing these days? KFC is doing, uh, doing all right. You know, they've had a bit of a shift in terms of, you know, moving from the, the fried chicken, um, naming and putting a bit more of a focus on, you know, taking away some of the, the food that weren't considered, you know, as healthy and right. trying to upscale their, their product. But, you know, their, their chicken sandwich, uh, same situation, you know, they looked at the, the offering that they previously had and they increased the, the breast size of the chicken. They reformulated some of the seasoning and added a bit of sauce to it. Um, changed the bun, so same formula, um, and then had a good social campaign around it as well. And I think a lot of this is being driven by some of the social media frenzy that these quick service restaurants are, are employing. Right. Okay. I'm looking forward to opening the phone lines here. So if people have had, if you've ever tried any of these sandwiches, just get set to call me up on it because I'm really curious about what some of them are like. Like Chick-fil-A, for example, like that's big in, in the United States. Right, Robert? Like Chick-fil-A huge. is huge. Yeah, it's really, really big. And I think there's, I just went on their Canadian website and I think they got two locations in Toronto and that's, is that it? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Chick-fil-A has started their international expansion uh, into the Canadian marketplace. So yeah, their first location in, in the Toronto area at the Young and Bloor opened, I want to say that was about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, and then they've opened their second one in the mall location. So, but uh, their their plan is to continue that expansion uh, within the Canadian market. Okay, I, I'm. I hope they do because I'm kind of curious about that one. I've never I've never tried it myself, but I have friends in the United States who just rave about this Chick Fil A. Um, Wendy's. I mean, Wendy's sort of jumped in there. Wendy's. I love Wendy's uh, Twitter account, Twitter account. Uh, and their uh, social media, media presence is just really great. Really great. Yeah, they're, they're doing a. Go ahead. Yeah, no, exactly. They're doing a good job. You know, they're they're making it a little bit more cheeky, having a little bit more fun with it as well. But yeah, no, they've done the exact same thing. You launched chicken sandwich, and as they try to get into this chicken sandwich war, the chicken sandwich war, and then of course McDonald's. So I noticed that they were kind of rebooting them at chicken with some hot sauces. Yeah, that's right. So they're scheduled in February, actually, uh, I think this week, if not next week, to launch three new uh, versions of their chicken sandwich uh, as well. Yeah, so so we'll see that in the U.S. uh, and then in the Canadian market shortly after. Okay, Robert, now you're the expert on this industry. Like, it, this is like cutthroat competition, right? Like, it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of fun to talk about these sandwiches, and I'm just going to be drooling for a chicken sandwich when, for lunch today. But, you know, this gets down to like, this is big money. I mean, this is big money and real cutthroat competition. And how does it, what does it come down to? Is it like traditional advertising or is it more social media these days? Yeah, great question. And you're right. This is a cutthroat industry. You know, the restaurant industry in, in Canada and the U.S. is it's cutthroat. We're talking about businesses that are on razor thin margins. So, you know, it, it's what I call a steel share game. You know, you you need to be increasing your sales on market share, and you need to be stealing from your competitors. So, you know, when you've got a category like chicken sandwiches, which is growing at a double-digit rate, you want to make sure that you've got a product offering that can capitalize on that growth. Right. And uh, how big is the the social media kind of buzz for for sales these days? Is that just getting more and more important? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're seeing a massive shift from some of the traditional marketing channels, such as, you know, print media, television, uh, to the digital format, uh, particularly over those last years. We know more uh, consumers moving to the online environment. So, you know, the social media aspect and the ability to connect directly with consumers is just something, you know, restaurants haven't used uh, as part of their arsenal um, as aggressively as they are now. So the social media will just continue to be uh, a key area of opportunity. Right. And you've you've uh, pointed out to us in the past that the industry likes to brand itself as quick service restaurant and not and not the fast food industry, which, of course, like fast food has got that connotation of unhealthy, unhealthy food. So and I can certainly understand that. My own rationale when it comes to consumption of fast food is everything in moderation. So I used to eat more of it when I was younger. I think your body can tolerate it a bit more when you're younger. As you get older, I really cut back on it. But I got to tell you, I occasionally will will indulge. Like sometimes I'll hit, I'll head to the McDonald's drive-through. You know, like I had a Big Mac the other day, and it it was really good. So, but when you look at some of the the contents of this food. I mean, you're talking like a fat and sodium bomb, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there, that's going to be the next battle is the sodium play uh, for sure. Yeah. You know, we've seen um, really great strides from, from the quick service uh, industry, particularly in the last decade, if not just the last five years really addressing the health and wellness factor, you know, with the A and W as we've talked about in the past, coming out with yes. the, you know, raise without hormones and whatnot. More and more of these quick service operators are understanding that they've got to play in the health and wellness uh, uh, realm. And, and consumers are just much more educated in terms of the types of foods they're eating. And if they don't evolve, then they're, they're not going to have a business. A and W is interesting because, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's A and W is an American fast food chain, but it's got like an independent Canadian branch, right? Yeah, exactly. Completely independent here in Canada. Uh, no uh, tie to the U.S. Uh, company at all, and that that yeah. took place. You know, I think it was in the '60s when that when that happened. But the Canadian division of of A and W has done a far better job than than their U.S. counterpart. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, overall, and, and it's just, it's such a great story, a Canadian story, and it's really been under the radar for for many years, but, you know, right out of Vancouver, good company, um, done a great job in terms of unit expansion and continued growth. Yeah, no, they've really done well. Their marketing is terrific, and their commercials are really good. My guest is Robert Carter. He is a Canadian fast food industry expert, a quick service industry. He's with Stratton Hunter. All right, welcome back to the show. Of course, Britney Spears playing there, one of her biggest hit songs. I've never been a, a, a huge fan of Britney, but I've always kind of liked her. I like her songs. I think she's a very talented entertainer. And I've always felt a lot of sympathy for her, too, and her struggles and problems that she's endured from the paparazzi. I think there's been a lot of mean media coverage of her over the years. She's had some very public mental health challenges. So I think she's endured a lot. So that's why I'm interested in the massive interest now in this new Britney Spears documentary, which premiered in the United States last week on the 
FX Network and also Hulu in the United States. It's called Framing Britney Spears. Let's listen to the trailer here. Britney was so serious and so focused. This is a girl that's coming from strength. She was so open and vulnerable. How we treated her was disgusting. Britney had to navigate being told who she could be and what she could do. People became fascinated with her sort of unraveling. She accepted that the conservatorship was going to happen, but she didn't want her father to be conservative. That was her one request. And anytime there's that amount of money to be made, you have to question the motives of everyone close to that person. All right, a little listen to the trailer there from the documentary Framing Britney Spears. Let's discuss now with my guest, Graham O'Neill. He's a host at ET Canada Live, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Graham, thanks a lot for doing this. No problem. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, everybody's talking about this documentary. One thing we should point out, it's difficult or if not impossible to see this documentary legally on our side of the border, right? Like, is it it available in Canada or no? No, it's not available in Canada. I'm sure that's going to change. I'm sure some of the broadcasters and some of the streamers are trying to figure that out right now since this has become such a huge thing. But yeah, right now you can't watch it in Canada. Okay, it's really taken off in the States. It's got everybody talking. Why is this documentary and this, this new look at Britney Spears, why is this so big, do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we saw this a couple of years ago with the R. Kelly documentary. I mean, all that stuff has been out there about Britney Spears, but someone putting it together in an, you know, an hour, hour and a half format, and you just see you know, how she was treated, and we're just looking at stuff at all new, in a whole new light over the past couple of years. I mean, we just see how people were treated. So now instead of you know, seeing Britney as you know, a sex pot or a crazy person, you're actually seeing in this new light that we have of how she was really treated just completely unfairly. Well, yeah, and a lot of these old interviews that are popping up now, like Diane Sawyer did a real aggressive interview with her, and now people are looking at that and saying, wow, she was really treated unfairly. We see uh, Justin Timberlake here, another big star who is her uh, her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend, today has now issued an apology uh, to Britney Spears today. So, you know, as a, I think as a result of this doc, everyone talking from this documentary. So, I mean, this is having ramifications uh, right now as a result, right? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, Justin Timberlake, because he also talks about uh, Janet Jackson. That was 2004, that Super Bowl performance. So now he's apologizing to both of them. If you think about this, I mean, that was 17 years ago was the Janet Jackson thing. He broke up with Britney Spears in 2002. This has always been a conversation about Justin Timberlake, and he's just ignored it. But I think you're seeing now in the new environment that we're in the past couple of years, he can't ignore this anymore. Like people are saying yeah. this is him doing damage control for his career. But I think Justin Timberlake could, could probably not work another day in his life and be fine financially. So I don't think this is a you know professional move for him. I think this is just if he has any, has any kind of character, it was time for him to finally fess up and apologize in his role in the, you know, the real the public scrutiny that these two women have been under for almost two decades now. Yeah, and it was a pretty groveling apology here from Justin Timberlake that he's that he's issued today. So it shows you the power, I think, of this documentary film that has debuted in, in the United States, framing Britney Spears. It's got a lot. The social media uh, the way this has taken off on social media with the free is it the free Britney hashtag? Yeah, what, that's right. What what is that? Yeah, so that's the whole idea is that that her fans think that this conservatorship that's been going since, since 2007, which was around when she had you know, her very public spectacles of uh, you know, issues that she was having. That's when the conservatorship was put in place. But this thing has been in place for 14 years now. And of course, Britney Spears has been performing, having no trouble you know, performing on stage. So to think that she's 
has such a limited capacity that he, she can't have any control over money. It just seems ridiculous at this point. And her father's actions, who still controls this conservatorship, are being questioned, like, what's his role in this? You know, how financially does he benefit from this? So there's a real call uh, to change this. And now in the court documents, I believe it was in November, Britney Spears is recognizing the outpouring of support that she has, and she fully supports that, that this movement. So that's our first indication that Britney is not okay with this, and she's been fighting over the past six months to get her dad removed uh, as, the, as the controller of her conservatorship. And there was just a, a court hearing yesterday Right. Where the where the judge has uh, a very very minor victory, but he but the judge has maintained that uh, no no Jamie Spears is going to have to share control of this conservatorship now. So it, this is not over by any means, but that's the first first window that Britney's gotten is that she can change the terms of this conservatorship in fourteen years. So once again, just the power of this documentary in the last week. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that is the fascinating part about this is this conservator conservatorship. Uh, with her father, Jamie Spears, like basically, and it's been in place for a long time. So basically he controls like her financial, her finances, right? Like, has he got total control over her money? Yeah. I mean, we don't know all the details, but I mean, it's basically yeah. she almost gets like, you know, a small allowance to live on yeah. and then Weird. he controls everything else. So yeah, like usually a conservatorship is, is left for, you know, someone who's elderly, who, you know, can't make decisions for themselves anymore, but it made sense. You know, when Brittany was going through that period back in 2007, it made sense, but I mean, for the same, you know, guys or same rules for the same restrictions for this conservatorship to still be in play 14 years later is just crazy. Yeah, no, it really is. Speaking to Graham O'Neill, he's the host at ET Canada Live, uh, talking about that Britney Spears documentary, Framing Britney Spears. I really hope that that comes to Canada very, very soon here. There's so much interest in this. Where is Britney's career at right now? Like, is she still entertaining? I know she had, like, a, she was performing in Vegas a lot recently. Is she still performing down there? No, like, so she was supposed to launch a new residency, ooh, I think it was 2019 she was supposed to, yeah. um, but they, they pulled back in doing that. But the thing is now, what, you know, the inside sources are saying is that Britney doesn't want to perform again as long as her dad is, is in control of her conservatorship, because obviously wow. any money made from that, we know, would go into this conservatorship. So she's kind of playing hardball at this point, saying, you know what, fine, I won't perform until we change the, the restrictions on this conservatorship. So, yeah, it's kind of a holding pattern right now. Okay, so do you think we'll uh, we'll ever see her perform on stage again, or does it really come down to what the judge decides on this conservatorship uh, controversy with her father? Yeah, I mean, I don't think she'll perform again until yeah the the terms of this conservatorship change because obviously you know Britney's fine in terms of finances, but yeah, she doesn't have control of them. So I think it is time for her to play you know hardball about this and like yeah, if they really want to still make money off her, then yeah, they're going to have to. Give her her own money back, basically. Okay, meanwhile, this free Britney hashtag thing on social media, I mean, she has a legion of fans, very devoted fans. So does that show you the power of social media, too? I mean, we've got this New York Times documentary that has really kicked things off, but then it takes off a, a sort of a life of its own on social media. It sort of shows you the power of that, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, because the free Britney movement started, let's say, about three or four years ago with just you know, a group of, you know, maybe a couple dozen fans going down to the courthouse and holding signs up front. And now we see where it is where, you know, the past week we've seen some huge celebrities come out in support of the Free Britain yeah. movement after watching this documentary. So, yeah, you just see how these things can snowball. And, you know, the power of being you know shown in the public sphere in that kind of form in the documentary is really having a lot of impact. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. Graham, thanks for jumping on here to talk about it. Appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Okay. Graham O'Neill there. He's a host at ET Canada Live talking about the Framing Britney Spears documentary. You can't really see that legally in Canada. Now, people figure out tricks and ways ways to watch it online, uh, but right now you can't get it. I know there are uh, negotiations going on to try and get this on some Canadian networks because it's got everybody talking south of the border in the United States. My thanks to Graham O'Neill there.